Welcome to the Gutenberg Podcast, where we talk about the ideas that have shaped Western civilization through the curriculum of Gutenberg College. Uh, today I have Brian Julian with me. We are going to be talking about Plato and Socrates. Welcome, Brian. Thank you. Um, for the record, would you like to tell us some of your summa vitae like, that you would like us to know? I am a Gutenberg graduate back in 2004, and I went on and got a PhD in philosophy from Boston University, and I am excited to now be in my second year of teaching at Gutenberg. So Plato is a very important figure in the Gutenberg curriculum. Generally, the uh, later two years that have read in different sort of realms of philosophy, like epistemology or ontology or ethics, will begin by discussing a work that Plato wrote and then move sort of chronologically through other, other authors who spoke about things in that realm. So to talk about Plato is sort of a huge task and sort of to begin reading Plato is sometimes intimidating because even though there are sort of, you know, collected works that come and they have, you know, five sort of starter dialogues, if you will, um, it's not always obvious or where to start. So I think what we want to be doing today is sort of give kind of a larger picture of Plato's project and how Socrates fits into that. And one of the places that you wanted to start was by talking about the Socratic method, um, because that's something that people often hear about is, you know, particularly in classical educational uh, settings, this idea of having a Socratic dialogue that's focused on asking questions and improving critical reasoning is very important. Could you talk a little bit more about the Socratic method and how that's sort of generally portrayed and how that might be different from the actual Socrates and his method and what he was doing? Yeah. So, when you have people nowadays talking about the Socratic method, they're usually contrasting it with a form of education that is more perhaps lecture-based or you're just telling people the things that they're supposed to know. And instead, you are going to, like Socrates, ask a lot of questions. You're going to have the students answer questions for themselves so that they're having to think through the problems. So rather than just telling them, here are the things you need to know, you ask somewhat leading questions to provoke the students to make them think through an issue to develop critical reasoning, something like that. And it comes from Plato, ultimately from Socrates and the way that in his dialogues, Socrates is, he, he's famous for going around and asking questions of people. So, Socrates is famous for asking questions, um, but it seems that uh, Socrates isn't necessarily interested in just improving people's reasoning skills. Uh, 
it seems that at least in in your contention that he has sort of a bigger picture in view could you just sort of give us a little bit of a thesis statement for what you think he's doing and then we'll sort of work through uh some of the particulars of that yeah so ultimately in plato's dialogues the ones that socrates features prominently in he is not just trying to get people to think a little more. He is instead um, really pushing them to examine their lives and examine what they're doing. That is, he is he's not just trying to improve somebody's thinking skills or trying out a different way of educating them about the same sort of subjects, but he is kind of radically asking them to re-examine what they're doing with their whole life. Mm -hmm. And this is especially seen in Plato's Apology, which is one of the best pictures we get of Socrates outlining, outlining his method. And he makes some famous statements like that he's uh, he's a gadfly, and he says that the unexamined life is not worth living. And those are famous statements, but they're potentially easy to miss how radical mm-hmm. the idea behind what he's saying is. So we will we will walk through sort of a, a little bit more specific picture of what you. Um, have in mind there. But before we get there, let's talk a little bit about Plato for people who might not be uh, familiar with him uh, at all. Plato is one of these authors in sort of the Western canon where you you kind of can't understand what he's doing unless you read a lot of his work. There are authors who they have, you know, they write multiple books, but basically there's one kind of key book that if you read that book, you can kind of get a handle on what they're doing. But Plato is not so much like that. So could you give us sort of a picture of who was Plato and kind of what do we know about him just historically? And when did he set about writing his dialogues and all of that sort of thing? Yeah. So Plato was a follower of Socrates. You could say he's a student, but in the dialogue, sometimes it is made a big deal that Socrates doesn't have students per se, That, but he had people that followed him around. And Plato was one of those. Socrates was executed when he was 70 years old by... Athens, the city that he lived in. And Plato was fairly young at that point, but he carried on using Socrates as a character in his dialogues after that. Plato came from a wealthy family. He was well-connected. There were actually some kind of notorious people related to him in Athenian politics. But Plato himself founded a school, the Academy, and presumably in some sense carried on some of what Socrates is doing. At that point, you can run into lots of debates about how faithful Plato was to the historical Socrates, how much he changed the project and did his own thing. But in any case, he was clearly very influenced by Socrates that he followed around when he was when he was a younger man. Maybe at some 
at some during some later podcasts, we can sort of talk about some of those debates depending on how much is Plato, how much is Socrates. But for our purposes today, we're just going to talk about them basically as if they have uh, similar projects. So you mentioned earlier that Socrates says that he is a gadfly, and we're sort of looking at this question of the Socratic method or at least what whatever Socrates was doing before it sort of had these other educational uh, you know overtones uh whatever Socrates was doing he was trying to get people to reexamine their lives so what is the significance of him being a gadfly so a gadfly is a little a little fly that's a pest it bites horses and that's the that's the analogy that, that Socrates is explicitly drawing on that he is somehow saying that he is being intentionally annoying in doing what he's doing. He says that he's, he's going to be a gadfly to the city of Athens to spur it on to be greater than it currently is. So he is the, the gadfly analogy. We, we should, we should stop and be a little surprised in that he's saying that he is provoking people intentionally Mm-hmm. A gadfly is not a nice little thing that whispers in your ear and encourages you. It's the it's the sort of thing that you go, ouch, quit that. Yeah. It's very interesting to interact, uh, as I, I have with some classical educators who sort of embrace the Socratic method, because sometimes, particularly young sort of new teachers will sort of embrace the Socratic method, and it gets very, they aggravate students by sort of doing that, and presumably as an educational tool, that's sort of not what's in view. But let's let's think about the historical, or at least the Platonic project that uh, Plato has Socrates in. I think it'd be best if we looked at particular examples. There are many dialogues to choose from. So, it, what what dialogue do you think is a good place to start? Sort of looking at an example of Socrates acting as a gadfly for. Athenians. Yeah, so I already mentioned the Apology, which is where Socrates is on trial. If anybody gets confused by the name Apology, Socrates does not apologize for anything there. He is defending himself against charges that were brought against him. And that's a good dialogue for looking at the kind of the theory of what Socrates is doing. But if you want to look at an example of him doing it. A great one is the dialogue Euthyphro, which Plato sets in the time just in the the weeks prior to Socrates' trial. He's he's going to court to address the charges against him, and he runs into a guy named Euthyphro who is also going to court. So I believe and you can correct me if I'm wrong, Euthyphro was an actual person and he was sort of a famous religious figure. That- if I remember correctly, there are debates as to okay. whether he was... I think we do have records of a person yes. named Euthyphro, but we do not have enough records to know how well known he was. So it's cer- it's certainly one of the theories that's yes. sort of brought out is that Euthyphro is this sort of important religious figure. Yes. And so their dialogue ends up being about what is piety. And so um, why don't you uh, fill us in a little bit about how Socrates is sort of being a gadfly for Euthyphro in this dialogue? Yeah. So... 
piety, which is what the dialogue focuses on, is the virtue of correctly relating to the gods. So, um, they're in a polytheistic context. The pious person is the one who is acting towards the gods in the right way. And it comes up in the dialogue because Euthyphro, the reason he's going to court, is he is prosecuting his own father for murder. And there's a lot of details we could look at of the ins and outs of it. It actually gets pretty complicated pretty quickly. But the, the key thing is that this would have been unheard of in classical Greek times. Normally, my understanding is that charges were brought by the family of the person who was murdered. And so to have somebody bringing charges against his own father when the person murdered was not a relative, Mm -hmm. that would have been seen in, in a culture that very much values family, values family connections, you prioritize your family, to go and prosecute your own father would have been seen as impious as like the the gods are going to look unfavorably at this so they start this dialogue socrates is going to court he runs into euthro who's also going to court and socrates hears that euthro is prosecuting his father which even without all of that background socrates goes on to question the whole affair so how does that how does that how does he then proceed to act like a gadfly okay so Euthyphro makes it clear at a certain point that he is prosecuting his father despite the fact that everybody else thinks it's impious because Euthyphro says he knows what piety is. Euthyphro sees himself as particularly pious. So that's where Socrates brings in his questioning is Socrates stops him and says, well, Euthyphro, since you know, why don't you define what piety is? And what's important there is that Plato has set up the dialogue such that there is this context the question is that being asked in. It is not Socrates merely asking Euthyphro a question because that is a useful way to get at the nature of piety, to define piety, but he is asking him because Euthyphro is potentially doing something really horrible. And so Socrates' question is not just about improving Euthyphro's reasoning skills, but it's about asking Euthyphro to examine how he's living his life. Mm-hmm. This this very significant choice that he's making about pr- prosecuting his own father. So the dialogue shows at the end that it that this is the emphasis that it has, that he's looking at Euthyphro's life and not just the question about piety. Socrates, his last interchange with Euthyphro, he says, so we must investigate again from the beginning what piety is. Socrates says this because they've tried a few times, they've failed, they haven't actually found a definition. So he says, we have to start it again. As I shall not willingly give up before I learn this, do not think me unworthy, but concentrate your attention and tell the truth. For you know it, if any man does, and I must not let you go like Proteus before you tell me. If you had no clear knowledge of piety and impiety, you would never have ventured to prosecute your old father for murder on behalf of a servant. 
For fear of the gods, you would have been afraid to take the risk, lest you should not be acting rightly, and would have been ashamed before men. But now I know well that you believe you have clear knowledge of piety and impiety. So tell me, my good Euthyphro, and do not hide what you think it is. And then Euthyphro responds, Some other time, Socrates, for I'm in a hurry now, and it's time for me to go. So... Here at the end, Socrates makes it clear that he's been asking Euthyphro what piety is because Euthyphro is prosecuting his father. And Euthyphro has failed in this dialogue to produce a definition, despite repeated attempts, which suggests that he might not actually know what piety is, like he thinks he does. And Socrates is basically calling him out on it at the end. And And it's important in what Socrates says there that he's saying, you seem to know, be really confident, right? You seem to think that you know what the difference between piety and impiety is, and yet you can't sort of talk this through with me. And so it seems like you're operating from not really knowing what piety is, but just like you have, you know, ultimately imp- impiously, you're sort of going and prosecuting your father. And you throw waves them off. I'm in a hurry. <laughs> Right. So Euthyphro is one example of this, this dynamic you're talking about where Socrates is asking questions, not necessarily because, you know, he's just interested in the abstract philosophical question, but because he's interested in somebody sort of changing their behavior. What are some other examples of characters that Socrates talks to who he's also interested in possibly changing their behavior? So Euthyphro is a nice, clear example because Plato gives you the context, but several of the other dialogues, somebody living back at the time would know who these historical characters are and know that they're kind of problematic people. The dialogue Mino, which asks the question whether virtue can be taught, Mino was not a good guy. Like he mm-hmm. he was known for being a not good guy. Uh-huh. So when he when he asked the question, can virtue be taught? If if we had the proper context, we would realize this is a weird question for this yeah. guy to be asking. So Socrates talking to him would again, it's a problematic person that he's talking to who right. probably should examine his life. Famously, Socrates um, was associated with Alcibiades, who was a notorious traitor to the Athenians. Alcibiades shows up in the Symposium by Plato. And then just several of the dialogues involve the Sophists, which if you read enough Plato, you pick up that Plato is not a fan of the Sophists. They were people that went around and basically taught people how to win court cases, whether or not they deserved to win. So many, many of the people that Socrates talks to in the dialogues are problematic in some way. They're not just, he's not just meeting Joe on the street and like, oh, here's this guy that he's talking to, but he's talking to people that either have a bad reputation or in Plato's view should have a bad reputation like the Mm -hmm. sophists. Mm -hmm. So is there some kind of unifying problem there that, that all of the, obviously, so Euthyphro is impious. Alcibiades is a traitor. Presumably Mino isn't virtuous, which is why he sort of asked this question, but is there some sort of deeper sort of issue that like manifests in these different ways or yeah. Like is, is there, Uh, some more unifying problem? I think Socrates makes this clear in the Apology. There's a certain point where he 
is explaining what he does when he goes around to people. Again, the apology gives more of a thematic presentation of what Socrates is doing. And so he straight up says what what he does when he goes around and talks to people, specifically to his fellow Athenians, the citizens that he lives with. And Socrates tells them, and he, he's responding to the suggestion that maybe he should just stop doing philosophy. And he says, no, I'm not going to do that. And he says... As long as I draw breath and am able, I shall not cease to practice philosophy, to exhort you and in my usual way to point out to any one of you whom I happen to meet. Good sir, you are an Athenian, a citizen of the greatest city, with the greatest reputation for both wisdom and power. Are you not ashamed of your eagerness to possess as much wealth, reputation, and honors as possible, while you do not care for nor give thought to wisdom or truth or the best possible state of your soul? Then if one of you disputes this and says he does care, I shall not let him go at once or leave him, but I shall question him, examine him, and test him. And if I do not think he has attained the goodness that he says he has, I shall reproach him because he attaches little importance to the most important things and greater importance to inferior things. That is, Socrates is saying we kind of tend towards wanting the wrong things in life. We, we all know this now. We complain about materialism as a culture. Mm-hmm. There's very, I mean, there are people out there, but most people are not like, yeah, I love being a materialist and I only <laughs> care about money. I don't care about goodness mm-hmm. or virtue. Mm-hmm. And like, so that's one thing that Socrates would be complaining about. But we all recognize the seduction of money and power and honor and reputation and all of that. And Socrates is calling people out on that and saying, hey, you're living your life for these things and you say that you care about virtue too but i'm actually going to test you on that right i'm going to ask you are you really caring about virtue so that so you have this common thread right euthyphro knows he's pious right and socrates is going but are you (laughs) and and uh mayno is uh he's you know, he is giving lip service to this idea of being virtuous. And Socrates is like, but do you, do you really understand what that would mean? (laughs) And that, and that seems to be sort of the core of what Socrates is saying is like, I go around and there are all these people saying that they're virtuous and it's like, but really are you? (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. And this is the, This is why the dialogues are still relevant for us, because we can fall into all the same traps. So Socrates' questioning is meant to, okay, going back to this gadfly analogy, right? He's trying trying to rouse people out of this sort of complacency with with the sort of half-hearted, you know, lip service to virtue rather than the actual thing. So, so you mentioned earlier that you think that Socrates believes that the city of Athens might be improved by him acting as a gadfly. And he, he mentioned in that quote that you just read, right? Like you're an Athenian. (laughs) Shouldn't you know better? But you know, we, we are now, uh, 
a ways away and we sort of see what what's just loyalty to a particular country or nation sort of results in not always positive does socrates have sort of other motivations for trying to reform his the the people that he decides to interact with I mean, Socrates sees, so he cares about Athens because it's the city that he lives in. He kind of famously doesn't go around other places. So he cares about the people around him, but he actually is motivated out of a service to God. He sees that there's a famous story where um, an oracle declared that there's no one wiser than Socrates. And Socrates was confused by this, but he ultimately came to decide that by saying this, the oracle and the god behind the oracle was provoking him to go out to the city and help the city become wise. And wise in the sense of knowing what virtue is so that they can be virtuous. In the Gadfly passage from the Apology, Socrates makes this explicit. He says, I was attached to this city by the god, though it seems a ridiculous thing to say, as upon a great and noble horse, which was somewhat sluggish because of its size, and needed to be stirred up by a kind of gadfly. It is to fulfill some such function that I believe the god has placed me in the city. I never cease to rouse each and every one of you, to persuade and reproach you all day long, and everywhere I find myself in your company." Another such man will not easily come to be among you, gentlemen, and if you believe me, you will spare me. You might easily be annoyed with me as people are when they are aroused from a doze and strike out at me. If convinced by my accusers, you could easily kill me, and then you could sleep on for the rest of your days, unless the god, in his care for you, sent you someone else. So, Socrates ultimately sees his mission in life as from God. It's a divine mission to call people to live the right way. They care about the wrong things, but they don't realize it. And so he's going to question them till their reasoning falls apart, until they reach the point where they can stop and actually ask themselves the question, am I going the right direction with my life? And this is ultimately a divine mission. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, One of the difficulties that people sometimes have with Plato, reading Plato's dialogues, is that you will read dialogues where people don't arrive at a definition. And uh, it seems, based on what you've said, this isn't because Plato doesn't think there's a right answer. Plato doesn't have a definition. But the problem is, is that Socrates is engaging with people who aren't, who haven't yet arrived at a place where they're open to changing their minds and changing directions. Exactly. So the problem with a definition is that it stops us from asking questions any further. Every single person Socrates ran into, the first time he asks, like when he asks Euthyphro, what is piety? Euthyphro provides an answer. And if the conversation stopped there, Euthyphro would never potentially change his mind. He would never potentially stop the prosecution of his father. Similarly with all the other people Socrates talks to. So the questions and the lack of a resolution are actually key to what he's doing. And this ties into 
the, the famous quote, probably the most famous quote about Socrates, that the unexamined life is not worth living. That is, examination is not because we're trying to find all the right answers and then stop. But the examination is really what's keeping us moving to keep us asking, are we living right early or not? Socrates says that we need to examine our lives because it is the greatest good for a man to discuss virtue every day and those other things about which you hear me conversing and testing myself and others. For the unexamined life is not worth living for men. Just to clarify, the word for men there is the word for people. So Plato is plenty sexist in other places, but he is not so in this particular point. But the unexamined life is... The unexamined life is the one where we just go on thinking that we're right, thinking that we know how to live and we're just going to plow on going forward with what we are doing right now. Mm -hmm. And that can be a real problem because, I mean, as Socrates is, is exhorting us, examination is asking ourselves, am I living right? Am I truly being virtuous? And he thinks that virtue is so important that a life that is not examined, a life that ends up not being virtuous, is not just a life where, you know, it, it's somewhat less satisfying than other lives, but all things considered, it's basically decent. I mean, the quote is, the unexamined life is not worth living. That is, uh, if we're not asking ourselves questions in this way, our life is worthless, according to Socrates. It is very ironic that in our age, this quote that you just read People can take it to mean something like, it's the greatest good for men to talk about stuff all the time, right? And that is sort of assuming a particular picture of virtue and sort of being like, well, it's not an academic sort of picture of virtue. But what you're contending is that Socrates is, it's not the talking, <laughs> That's the important part. It's the actually paying attention to whether you are virtuous or not, which you have, like, you have to do that in some way through discussion and through, like, living with other people. But the focus of this is how people are living their lives rather than the fact that you talk about it. Right. So the questioning, his Socratic method of questioning people is focused on. Am I living rightly? It's not an academic exercise. It's true that he taught people in this way, but it wasn't folk it wasn't a focus on how can I educate people in the sense of help them to come to their own understanding or something like that. But his method is there to get people to ask about how they are living life. Do they understand what a good life is? And are they living in light of that? Yeah. And ultimately, we need to be asking ourselves that. Right, right. So this goes back to one of the very first episodes that we had in this podcast where I was talking with Chris Swanson about, you know, the difference between dialectic and rhetoric, right? And dialectic is a very important sort of concept in Plato. But this idea that you're sort of engaging with a human being and not just sort of talking at them. So based on this, this idea that the project is to be constantly working on ourselves and to be sort of helping other people as they're sort of working through this, you know, living the good life, how like like one of the problems and i go back to what i said earlier about new 
new teachers who are trying to do the Socratic method, they kind of end up coming off as some of them are actually jerks and some of them come off. Right. And Socrates can certainly come off like a jerk. So how do we keep that distinction there? Like, is Socrates ever a jerk? And how does that, how does, what, what delineates between sort of, you know, the project sounds noble, except in practice, <laughs> having this sort of unrelenting questioning can sometimes feel problematic. So how do you see the distinction? I think it's a great question. And kind of in the spirit of Socrates, I like to leave it open as a question. <laughs> in that I, I, there's a real possibility that Socrates is a jerk. Yeah. I've had many students read him that way. They come to class having read the Apology or read Euthyphro, and they're like, why won't Socrates just leave people alone? Like, he thinks he knows everything. And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it's a good question to ask. Like, if I see somebody who I think is living life wrong, is it really my job to go around and make sure that they mm-hmm. examine themselves to right. change their life? I think it's a great question to ask. Like, is being a gadfly a good thing? Maybe sometimes it is. There are often parallels made between people like Jesus and Martin Luther King with Socrates. Um, Both of those people were provoking in their own ways. Jesus has better reason to provoke because, well, he happens to be the son of God. So, like, uh, that... That, right. that gives him a little more status than other people to go around and ask people to change their yeah. lives. So it's a good question to ask. I think at the very least we should take away the thought that we can be Socrates to ourselves. Right. That I don't have to be provoking you. Right. But if I'm not provoking myself, then there's a problem. It also seems that there's much more room for this kind of jerkiness in, in a crafted work. Right. Because so often what the problem is, is the context is just so particular. Right. Is there a spot where being this kind of unrelenting, you know, questioner is appropriate? I'm sure there is, but the occasions on which that's the case is so less frequent than how often Socrates seems to be getting in these scraps. Right. And so Plato can have a sort of literary part of the literary sort of you know, setup is, okay, we've definitely got this right sort of context and here comes Socrates. It is very striking how I have taught high school students through the apology. And it is very striking. Like students will come in having read the apology and be like, he seems terrible. (laughs) You know, it's, it's very hard if you're not just kind of on board. Like, I don't know how to make the transition for people who are not on board the project to being on board the project. My experience reading the apology was like, I was just on his side and it's very interesting. There are, there is sort of even a branch of scholarship that sort of sees Socrates sort of being this problematic, you know, kind of, kind of person. There was the, is it stone has a book called the trial of Socrates. And basically they conclude like, yeah, he had, <laughs> he, he deserved to be killed. So it, in real life, acting like Socrates, particularly towards other people, can end up being really problematic. But this focus on being interested in the other person's good and sort of helping other people pursue the good life, which is sort of how Plato has set everything up, you know, that is sort of the main focus of what we should take away. Not necessarily the unrelentingness, but the like, are we interested in other people's good? Yeah. 
with all of that in mind, is there is there any other value that you see in uh, Socrates imparting in terms of how we should think about how how that project might affect how we teach? Maybe not not specifically in the methods, but sort of in sort of the underlying assumptions or values that we're coming to teaching with. So on the one hand, I think the traditional account in education of the Socratic method is great. Asking questions and encouraging critical reasoning are good. We should keep doing those things. We should also recognize that this is not fully Socratic, that there is potentially something more to be done there. That if I teach my students to be good critical reasoners, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to have a good life if they have a faulty conception of what the good life is. So to the extent to which I can encourage my students to actually reject folly and cling to the truth, ultimately meaning students who turn to God, that is great. Like, as a teacher, I would most want students who embrace what is truly important in life. Is prodding the best way to do this, like Socrates? I don't know. Probably not. I don't know how many people actually change their lives because people are annoying at them. <laughs> um, and probably I shouldn't be like trying to provoke existential crises in my students in every class. I do. I did have one student once who she told me every time she comes to class, she has an existential crisis. And I did take that as a compliment, but um, <laughs> that is not my goal in every class. Some classes are just, hey, we're going to talk about the apology today. Mm -hmm. But I do think that we need to take away from Socrates that we should care as teachers about ultimately what our students value. We have to recognize that they're autonomous. We have to recognize that they're going to have to choose this for themselves. But if I have a long enough contact with a student and I never raise the question for them of maybe there's something else to think about in living life than what you seem to be caring about, that might be a sort of failure as a teacher. Yeah. yeah. The good life is something that we want for students, even if, you know, what we have to talk about is this particular, you know, philosophical work or you know, this, this math concept or whatever. Yeah. I think, I think a teaching that is informed by that concern for other people, even if we don't share that sort of prodding method, I think is really good. All right. So Brian, as we're sort of, as we're sort of coming to the end of our dialogue here, you mentioned earlier that, you know, Socrates is often compared to Jesus or Martin Luther King as Christians. How should we think about Socrates and, you know, his project and his mission? What, what simpatico is there between the Socratic project and sort of Christianity and, and Jesus's project? Yeah. To say that more. Um, I think it, it's good to recognize that Socrates, I mean, Socrates cares about virtue and that's at least a part of what the Bible cares about. I should be caring about whether I am living morally in a morally right way or not. And so Socrates exhorting us to care about virtue 
that's a good thing. We do want to be careful when we read Plato. Socrates is a Greek. Plato's a Greek. His version of virtue is not necessarily a Christian version of virtue. Greek virtue isn't following God as a Christian all the time. So, we want to recognize that there is potential disconnect Mm -hmm. with what Socrates is doing. If I can just make an observation really quick before you get to the other things. So much of the interpretation of Plato has happened in the West in a Christian context. Yes. So there are certain, uh, just just a disclaimer for everyone who's interested in going and reading Plato, there are certain translators of certain eras where the translations make it sound very Christian, yes. right? Where the, where the language and how they sort of phrase things or the words that they choose to represent certain concepts are are such that they just make things sound very Christian. So that is something to sort of to be aware of as you're talking about being aware of the difference is sometimes it can seem like Plato is much closer because there was there was this move to sort of push him closer through translation. I just think that's an important thing for people to know as they're sort of getting into it. Yes. Um, and sometime if we have room for another podcast. I have many <laughs> thoughts about the ways that Plato gets misappropriated yes. by Christians. Yes. Yes. Uh, yes. But it is important to recognize that they are not necessarily the same thing. Exactly. Okay. So, insofar as Socrates is pushing us towards virtue, that's good. Virtue might look a little bit differently for the Christian than it may for the for the ancient Greek. Are there any other points of contention or comparison that you want to mention as we're wrapping up here? Yeah. Ultimately, as Christians, we have an even better motivation for wanting to examine ourselves than Socrates lists. And that's that as Christians, we're aware of sin. That is, we know that we often don't know our own hearts. We don't know our own motivations. There are so many times when we do things and we think we're doing it for the right reasons and we don't realize till way later that actually that was me being totally selfish and I was selling myself a story. So in a Christian context, questioning ourselves the way that Socrates wants us to makes a lot of sense. We have to ask ourselves things like, does the Bible really say what I think it does or am I simply believing what I want to hear? I have to ask, do I really believe in Christianity or do I just say I do? Just in general, am I really living right? Am I really living in light of God's revelation and what what God would want me to be living like? So, I mean, Socrates gives lots of good reason for asking ourselves questions, but as Christians, we have even better reasons to be doing so. That the issue of claiming to be about one thing and then not living in that way is, you know, as you pointed out, a perennial human problem. And insofar as Socrates reminds us of that, even if, you know, the the solutions may be different from the Christian than what he's proposing, it's important to continually be keeping that in mind. Exactly. And, and since Socrates is telling you, you need to keep that continually in mind, that's a very, like, helpful position that he's staking out. Well, Brian, thank you for your time. This is, I think this has been a wonderful introduction to just 
the big sort of picture of what Socrates is and Plato are doing. And we have now promised two more podcasts. So hopefully <laughs> you will come in in the future and we can talk more Plato and Socrates and sort of talk more about sort more specifics of what they were up to. Sounds good. Well, folks, that's the end of our program today. If you would like to interact with us, you can contact us at podcast at gutenberg.edu, P-O-D-C-A-S-T at G-U-T-E-N-B-E-R-G dot E-D-U. I'm Gil Greco, and this has been the Gutenberg Podcast. <laughs>